Book Three, Chapter One of On the Ends of Good and Evil by Cicero, translated by Harris Rackham. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Geoffrey Edwards. My dear Brutus, were pleasure to speak for herself in default of such redoubtable advocates as she now has to defend her my belief is that she would own defeat vanquished by the arguments of our preceding book she would yield the victory to true worth indeed she would be lost to shame if she persisted any longer in the battle against virtue and rated what is pleasant above what is morally good or maintained that bodily enjoyment or the mental gratification which springs from it is of higher value than firmness and dignity of character let us then give pleasure her dismissal and bid her keep within her own domains lest her charms and blandishments put snares in the way of strict philosophical debate the question before us is where is that chief good which is the object of our inquiry to be found pleasure we have eliminated the doctrine that the end of goods consists in freedom from pain is open to almost identical objections and in fact no chief good can be accepted that is without the element of virtue the most excellent thing that can exist hence although in our debate with torquatus we did not spare our strength nevertheless a keener struggle now awaits us with the stoics for pleasure is a topic that does not lend itself to very subtle or profound discussion its champions are little skilled in dialectic and their adversaries have no difficult case to refute in fact epicurus himself declares that there is no occasion to argue about pleasure at all its criterion resides in the senses so that proof is entirely superfluous a reminder of the facts is all that is needed therefore our preceding debate consisted of a simple statement of the case on either side there was nothing abstruse or intricate in the discourse of torquatus and my own exposition was i believe as clear as daylight but the stoics as you are aware affect an exceedingly subtle or rather crabbed style of argument and if the greeks find it so still more must we who have actually to create a vocabulary and to invent new terms to convey new ideas this necessity will cause no surprise to any one of moderate learning when he reflects that in every branch of science lying outside the range of common everyday practice there must always be a large degree of novelty in the vocabulary when it comes to fixing a terminology to denote the conceptions with which the science in question deals thus logic and natural philosophy alike make use of terms unfamiliar even to greece geometry music grammar also have an idiom of their own even the manuals of rhetoric which belong entirely to the practical sphere and to the life of the world nevertheless employ for purposes of instruction a sort of private and peculiar phraseology chapter two and to leave out of account these liberal arts and accomplishments even artisans would be unable to preserve the tradition of their crafts if they did not make use of words unknown to us though familiar to themselves nay agriculture itself a subject entirely unsusceptible of literary refinement has yet had to coin technical terms to denote the things with which it is occupied all the more is the philosopher compelled to do likewise for philosophy is the science of life 
and cannot be discussed in language taken at random from the street still of all the philosophers the stoics have been the greatest innovators in this respect and zeno their founder was rather an inventor of new terms than a discoverer of new ideas but if men so learned using a language generally supposed to be more copious than our own were allowed in handling recondite subjects to employ unfamiliar terms how much more right have we to claim this license who are venturing now to approach these topics for the first time moreover we have often declared and this under some protest not from greeks only but also from persons who would rather be considered greeks than romans that in fullness of vocabulary we are not merely not surpassed by the greeks but are actually their superiors we are therefore bound to do our utmost to make good this claim not in our native arts only but also in those that belong to the greeks themselves however words which the practice of past generations permits us to employ as latin exempli gratia the term philosophy itself or rhetoric logic grammar geometry music we may consider as being our own the ideas might it is true have been translated into latin but the greek terms have been naturalized by use so much for terminology as regards my subject i often fear brutus that i shall meet with censure for writing upon this topic to you who are yourself so great an adept in philosophy and in the highest branch of philosophy did i assume the attitude of an instructor such censure would be deserved but nothing could be farther from me i dedicate my work to you not to teach you what you know extremely well already but because your name gives me a very comforting sense of support and because i find in you a most impartial judge and critic of the studies which i share with yourself you will therefore grant me as always your closest attention and act as umpire of the debate which i held with that remarkable man of genius your uncle i was down at my place at tusculum and wanted to consult some books from the library of the young lucullus so i went to his country house as i was in the habit of doing to help myself to the volumes i needed on my arrival seated in the library i found marcus cato i had not known he was there he was surrounded by piles of books on stoicism for he possessed as you are aware a voracious appetite for reading and could never have enough of it indeed it was often his practice actually to brave the idle censure of the mob by reading in the senate house itself while waiting for the senate to assemble he did not steal any attention from public business so it may well be believed that when i found him taking a complete holiday with a vast supply of books at command he had the air of indulging in a literary debauch if the term may be applied to so honourable an occupation upon this chance encounter each of us being equally surprised to see the other he at once rose and we began to exchange the usual greetings what brings you here cried he you are from your country seat i suppose had i known you were there he continued i should have anticipated you with a visit yes i answered the games began yesterday so i came out of town and arrived late in the afternoon my reason for coming on here was to get some books from the library by the way cato it will soon be time for our friend lucullus to make acquaintance with this fine collection for i hope he will take more pleasure in his library than in all the other appointments of his country house 
i am extremely anxious though of course the responsibility belongs especially to you that he should have the kind of education that will turn him out after the same pattern as his father and our dear caipio and also yourself to whom he is so closely related and i have every motive for my interest in him i cherish the memory of his grandfather and you are aware how highly i esteemed caipio who in my belief would to-day be in the front rank were he still alive and also lucullus is always present to my mind he was a man of surpassing eminence united to me in sentiment and opinion as well as by friendship i commend you rejoined cato for your loyalty to the memory of men who both bequeath their children to your care as well as for your affectionate interest in the lad my own responsibility as you call it i by no means disown but i enlist you to share it with me moreover i may say that the youth already seems to me to show many signs both of modesty and talent but you know how young he is i do said i but all the same it is time for him to be dipping into studies which if allowed to soak in at this impressionable age will render him better equipped when he comes to the business of life true and we will discuss this matter again several times more fully and take common action but let us be seated he said if agreeable to you so we sat down chapter three cato then resumed but what pray are the books that you must come here for when you have so large a library of your own i have come to fetch some commentaries on aristotle i replied which i knew were here i wanted to read them during my holiday i do not often get any leisure how i wish said he that you had thrown in your lot with the stoics you of all men might have been expected to reckon virtue as the only good perhaps you might rather have been expected i answered to refrain from adopting a new terminology when in substance you think as i do our principles agree it is our language that is at variance indeed he rejoined they do not agree in the least once pronounce anything to be desirable once reckon anything as a good other than moral worth and you have extinguished the very light of virtue moral worth itself and overthrown virtue entirely that all sounds very fine cato i replied but are you aware that you share your lofty pretensions with pyrrho and with aristo who make all things equal in value i should like to know what your opinion is of them my opinion he said you ask what my opinion is that those good brave just and temperate men of whom we have heard as having lived in our state or whom we have ourselves seen who under the guidance of nature herself without the aid of any learning did many glorious deeds that these men were better educated by nature than they could possibly have been by philosophy had they accepted any other system of philosophy than the one that counts moral worth the only good and moral baseness the only evil all other philosophical systems in varying degrees no doubt but still all which reckon anything of which virtue is not an element either as a good or an evil do not merely as i hold give us no assistance or support towards becoming better men but are actually corrupting to the character either this point must be firmly maintained that moral worth is the sole good or it is absolutely impossible to prove that virtue constitutes happiness and in that case 
i do not see why we should trouble to study philosophy for if a wise man could be miserable i should not set much value on your vaunted and belauded virtue chapter four what you have said so far cato i answered might equally well be said by a follower of pyrrho or of aristo they as you are aware think as you do that this moral worth you speak of is not merely the chief but the only good and from this of necessity follows the proposition that i notice you maintain namely that the wise are always happy do you then i asked commend these philosophers and think that we ought to adopt this view of theirs i certainly would not have you adopt their view he said for it is of the essence of virtue to exercise choice among the things in accordance with nature so that philosophers who make all things absolutely equal rendering them indistinguishable either as better or worse and leaving no room for selection among them have abolished virtue itself excellently put i rejoined but pray are not you committed to the same position if you say that only what is right and moral is good and abolish all distinction between everything else quite so said he if i did abolish all distinction but i do not how so i said if only virtue only that one thing which you call moral right praiseworthy becoming for its nature will be better understood if it is denoted by a number of synonyms if then i say this is the sole good what other object of pursuit will you have beside it or if there be nothing bad but what is base dishonourable disgraceful evil sinful foul to make this clear also by using a variety of terms what else will you pronounce worthy to be avoided you know quite well he retorted what i am going to say but i suspect you want to catch up something in my answer if i put it shortly so i won't answer you point by point instead of that as we are at leisure i will expound unless you think it out of place the whole system of zeno and the stoics out of place i cried by no means your exposition will be of great assistance towards solving the questions we are asking then let us make the attempt said he albeit there is a considerable element of difficulty and obscurity in this stoic system for at one time even the terms employed in greek for its novel conceptions seemed unendurable when they were novel though now daily use has made them familiar what then do you think will be the case in latin do not feel the least difficulty on that score said i if when zeno invented some novel idea he was permitted to denote it by an equally unheard-of word why should not cato be permitted to do so too though all the same it need not be a hard and fast rule that every word shall be represented by its exact counterpart when there is a more familiar word conveying the same meaning that is the way of a clumsy translator indeed my own practice is to use several words to give what is expressed in greek by one if i cannot convey the sense otherwise and at the same time i hold that we may fairly claim the license to employ a greek word when no latin word is readily forthcoming why should this license be granted to ephippia saddles and acratophora jars for neat wine more than to proegmena and apoproegmena these latter however it is true may be correctly translated preferred and rejected thanks for your assistance he said 
I certainly shall use for choice the Latin equivalents you have just given, and in other cases you shall come to my aid if you see me in difficulties. I'll do my best, I replied, but fortune favors the bold, so pray make the venture. What sublimer occupation could we find? Chapter 5. He began. It is the view of those whose system I adopt that immediately upon birth, for that is the proper point to start from, a living creature feels an attachment for itself, and an impulse to preserve itself, and to feel affection for its own constitution, and for those things which tend to preserve that constitution, while on the other hand it conceives an antipathy to destruction, and to those things which appear to threaten destruction. In proof of this opinion, they urge that infants desire things conducive to their health, and reject things that are the opposite before they have ever felt pleasure or pain. This would not be the case unless they felt an affection for their own constitution, and were afraid of destruction. But it would be impossible that they should feel desire at all unless they possessed self-consciousness, and consequently felt affection for themselves. This leads to the conclusion that it is love of self which supplies the primary impulse to action. Pleasure, on the contrary, according to most Stoics, is not to be reckoned among the primary objects of natural impulse, and I very strongly agree with them, for fear lest many immoral consequences would follow if we held that nature has placed pleasure among the earliest objects of desire. But the fact of our affection for the objects first adopted at nature's prompting seems to require no further proof than this, that there is no one who, given the choice, would not prefer to have all the parts of his body sound and whole, rather than maimed or distorted, although equally serviceable. Again, acts of cognition, which we may term comprehensions or perceptions, or if these words are distasteful or obscure, catalepsis, these we consider meet to be adopted for their own sake because they possess an element that, so to speak, embraces and contains the truth. This can be seen in the case of children, whom we may observe to take pleasure in finding something out for themselves by the use of reason, even though they gain nothing by it. The sciences also, we consider, are things to be chosen for their own sake, partly because there is in them something worthy of choice, partly because they consist of acts of cognition, and contain an element of fact established by methodical reasoning. The mental assent to what is false, as the Stoics believe, is more repugnant to us than all the other things that are contrary to nature. Again, of the members or parts of the body, some appear to have been bestowed on us by nature for the sake of their use, for example, the hands, legs, feet, and the internal organs, as to the degree of whose utility even physicians are not agreed, while others serve no useful purpose, but appear to be intended for ornament, for instance, the peacock's tail, the plumage of the dove with its shifting colors, and the breasts and beard of the male human being. All this is perhaps somewhat badly expressed, for it deals with what may be called the primary elements of nature, to which any embellishment of style can scarcely be applied. Nor am I, for my part, concerned to attempt it. On the other hand, when one is treating of more majestic topics, the style instinctively rises with the subject, and the brilliance of the language increases with the dignity of the theme. True, I rejoined, but to my mind, 
any clear statement of an important topic possesses excellence of style it would be childish to desire an ornate style in subjects of the kind with which you are dealing a man of sense and education will be content to be able to express his meaning plainly and clearly chapter six to proceed then he continued for we have been digressing from the primary impulses of nature and with these the later stages must be in harmony the next step is the following fundamental classification that which is in itself in accordance with nature or which produces something else that is so and which therefore is deserving of choice as possessing a certain amount of positive value axia as the stoics call it this they pronounce to be valuable for so i suppose we may translate it and on the other hand that which is the contrary of the former they term valueless the initial principle being thus established that things in accordance with nature are things to be taken for their own sake and their opposites similarly things to be rejected the first appropriate act for so i render the greek kathekon is to preserve oneself in one's natural constitution the next is to retain those things which are in accordance with nature and to repel those that are the contrary then when this principle of choice and also of rejection has been discovered there follows next in order choice conditioned by appropriate action then such choice become a fixed habit and finally choice fully rationalized and in harmony with nature it is at this final stage that the good properly so called first emerges and comes to be understood in its true nature man's first attraction is towards the things in accordance with nature but as soon as he has attained to understanding or rather to conscious intelligence in stoic phraseology ennoia and has discerned the order and so to speak harmony that should govern conduct he then esteems this harmony far more highly than all the things for which he originally felt an affection and by exercise of intelligence and reason infers the conclusion that in this order resides the chief good of man the thing that is praiseworthy and desirable for its own sake and that inasmuch as this consists in what the stoics term homologia and we with your approval may call conformity inasmuch i say as in this resides that good which is the end to which all else is a means moral conduct and moral worth itself which alone is counted as a good although of subsequent development is nevertheless the sole thing that is for its own efficacy and value desirable whereas none of the primary objects of nature is desirable for its own sake but since those actions which i have termed appropriate acts are based on the primary natural objects it follows that the former are means to the latter hence it may correctly be said that all appropriate acts are means to the end of attaining the primary needs of nature yet it must not be inferred that their attainment is the ultimate good inasmuch as moral action is not one of the primary natural attractions but is an outgrowth of these a later development as i have said at the same time moral action is in accordance with nature and stimulates our desire far more strongly than all the objects that attracted us earlier but at this point a caution is necessary at the outset 
it will be an error to infer that this view implies two ultimate goods for though if a man were to make it his purpose to take a true aim with a spear or arrow at some mark his ultimate end corresponding to the ultimate good as we pronounce it would be to do all he could to aim straight the man in this illustration would have to do everything to aim straight and yet although he did everything to attain his purpose his ultimate end so to speak would be what corresponded to what we call the chief good in the conduct of life whereas the actual hitting of the mark would be in our phrase to be chosen but not to be desired chapter seven again as all appropriate acts are based on the primary impulses of nature it follows that wisdom itself is based on them also but as it often happens that a man who is introduced to another values this new friend more highly than he does the person who gave him the introduction so in like manner it is by no means surprising that though we are first introduced to wisdom by the primary natural instincts afterwards wisdom itself becomes dearer to us than are the instincts from which we came to her and just as our limbs are so fashioned that it is clear that they were bestowed upon us with a view to a certain mode of life so our faculty of appetition in greek horme was obviously designed not for any kind of life one may choose but for a particular mode of living and the same is true of reason and of perfected reason for just as an actor or dancer has assigned to him not any but a certain particular part or dance so life has to be conducted in a certain fixed way and not in any way we like this fixed way we speak of as conformable and suitable in fact we do not consider wisdom to be like seamanship or medicine but rather like the arts of acting and of dancing just mentioned its end being the actual exercise of the art is contained within the art itself and is not something extraneous to it at the same time there is also another point which marks a dissimilarity between wisdom and these same arts in the latter a movement perfectly executed nevertheless does not involve all the various motions which together constitute the subject matter of the art whereas in the sphere of conduct what we may call if you approve right actions or rightly performed actions in stoic phraseology catarthomata contain all the categories of virtue for wisdom alone is entirely self-contained which is not the case with the other arts it is erroneous however to place the end of medicine or of navigation exactly on a par with the end of wisdom for wisdom includes also magnanimity and justice and a sense of superiority to all the accidents of man's estate but this is not the case with the other arts again even the very virtues i have just mentioned cannot be attained by any one unless he has realized that all things are indifferent and indistinguishable except moral worth and baseness we may now observe how strikingly the principles i have established support the following corollaries inasmuch as the final aim and you have observed no doubt that i have all along been translating the greek term telos either by final or ultimate aim or chief good and for final or ultimate aim we may also substitute end inasmuch then as the final aim is to live in agreement and harmony with nature 
it necessarily follows that all wise men at all times enjoy a happy perfect and fortunate life free from all hindrance interference or want the essential principle not merely of the system of philosophy i am discussing but also of our life and fortunes is that we should believe moral worth to be the only good this principle might be amplified and elaborated in the rhetorical manner with great length and fullness and with all the resources of choice diction and impressive argument but for my own part i like the terse and pointed syllogisms of the stoics chapter eight they put their arguments in the following syllogistic form whatever is good is praiseworthy but whatever is praiseworthy is morally honourable therefore that which is good is morally honourable do you think this is a valid deduction undoubtedly it is so you can see that the conclusion rests on an inference logically drawn from the two premises the usual line of reply is to deny the major premise and say that not everything good is praiseworthy for there is no denying that what is praiseworthy is morally honourable but it would be paradoxical to maintain that there is something good which is not desirable or desirable that is not pleasing or if pleasing not also esteemed and therefore approved as well and so also praiseworthy but the praiseworthy is the morally honourable hence it follows that what is good is also morally honourable next i ask who can be proud of a life that is miserable or not happy it follows that one can only be proud of one's lot when it is a happy one this proves that the happy life is a thing that deserves so to speak that one should be proud of it and this cannot rightly be said of any life but one morally honourable therefore the moral life is the happy life and the man who deserves and wins praise has exceptional cause for pride and self-satisfaction but these things count for so much that he can justly be pronounced happy therefore the life of such a man can with full correctness be described as happy also thus if moral worth is the criterion of happiness moral worth must be deemed the only good once more could it be denied that it is impossible for there ever to exist a man of steadfast firm and lofty mind such a one as we call a brave man unless it be established that pain is not an evil for just as it is impossible for one who counts death as an evil not to fear death so in no case can a man disregard and despise a thing that he decides to be evil this being laid down as generally admitted we take as our minor premise that the brave and high-minded man despises and holds of no account all the accidents to which mankind is liable the conclusion follows that nothing is evil that is not base also your lofty distinguished magnanimous and truly brave man who thinks all human vicissitudes beneath him i mean the character we desire to produce our ideal man must unquestionably have faith in himself and in his own career both past and future and think well of himself holding that no ill can befall the wise man here then is another proof of the same position that moral worth alone is good and that to live honourably that is virtuously is to live happily chapter nine i am well aware it is true that varieties of opinion have existed among philosophers 
I mean among those of them who have placed the chief good, the ultimate aim, as I call it, in the mind. In following out these various views, some of them fell into errors. But, nevertheless, I rank all those, of whatever type, who have placed the chief good in the mind and in virtue, not merely above the three philosophers who dissociated the chief good from virtue altogether, and identified it either with pleasure or freedom from pain or the primary impulses of nature, but also above the other three who held that virtue would be incomplete without some enhancement, and therefore added to it one or other respectively of the three things I have just enumerated. But still, those thinkers are quite beside the mark who pronounced the ultimate good to be a life devoted to knowledge, and those who declared that all things are indifferent, and that the wise man will secure happiness by not preferring any one thing in the least degree to any other, and those again who said, as some members of the academy are said to have maintained, that the final good and supreme duty of the wise man is to resist appearances and resolutely withhold his assent to the reality of sense impressions. It is customary to take these doctrines severally and reply to them at length, but there is really no need to labor what is self-evident, and what could be more obvious than that if we can exercise no choice as between things consonant with and things contrary to nature, no scope is left at all for the much prized and belauded virtue of prudence. Eliminating, therefore, the views just enumerated and any others that resemble them, we are left with the conclusion that the chief good consists in applying to the conduct of life a knowledge of the working of natural causes, choosing what is in accordance with nature and rejecting what is contrary to it. In other words, the chief good is to live in agreement and in harmony with nature. But in the other arts, when we speak of an artistic performance, this quality must be considered as in a sense subsequent to and a result of the action. It is what the Stoics term epigenematicon, in the nature of an aftergrowth, whereas in conduct, when we speak of an act as wise, the term is applied with full correctness from the first inception of the act, for every action that the wise man initiates must necessarily be complete forthwith in all its parts, since the thing desirable, as we term it, consists in his activity. As it is a sin to betray one's country, to use violence to one's parents, to rob a temple, where the offence lies in the result of the act, so the passions of fear, grief, and lust are sins, even when no extraneous result ensues. The latter are sins, not in their subsequent effects, but immediately upon their inception. Similarly, actions, springing from virtue, are to be judged right from their first inception, and not in their successful completion. Chapter 10. Again, the term good, which has been employed so frequently in this discourse, is also explained by definition. The Stoic definitions do indeed differ from one another in a very minute degree, but they all point in the same direction. Personally, I agree with Diogenes in defining the good as that which is by nature perfect, in consonance with this, he pronounced the beneficial, for so let us render the Greek ophelima, to be a motion or state in accordance with that which is by nature perfect. 
now notions of things are produced in the mind when something has become known either by experience or by combination of ideas or by likeness or by analogy the fourth and last method in this list is the one that has given us the conception of the good the mind ascends by analogy from the things in accordance with nature till finally it arrives at the notion of good at the same time goodness is absolute and is not a question of degree the good is recognized and pronounced to be good from its own inherent properties and not by comparison with other things just as honey though extremely sweet is yet perceived to be sweet by its own peculiar kind of flavor and not by being compared with something else so this good which we are discussing is superlatively valuable yet the value in its case depends on kind and not on quantity value in greek axia is not counted as a good nor yet as an evil so that however much you increase it in amount it will still remain the same in kind the value of virtue is therefore peculiar and distinct it depends on kind and not on degree moreover the emotions of the mind which harass and embitter the life of the foolish the greek term for these is pathos and i might have rendered this literally and styled them diseases but the word disease would not suit all instances for example no one speaks of pity nor yet anger as a disease though the greeks term these pathos let us then accept the term emotion the very sound of which seems to denote something vicious and these emotions are not excited by any natural influence the list of the emotions is divided into four classes with numerous subdivisions namely sorrow fear lust and that mental emotion which the stoics call by a name that also denotes a bodily feeling hedone pleasure but which i prefer to style delight meaning the sensuous elation of the mind when in a state of exultation these emotions i say are not excited by any influence of nature they are all of them mere fancies and frivolous opinions therefore the wise man will always be free from them end of chapter ten of book three recording in memory of mitchell edwards